Hello and welcome to Science Fiction University. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years the Falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese falcon. We're your fan and writer hosts. I'm Blue Gal. And I'm Drift Glass. And you can visit Science Fiction University at our website, sciencefictionuniversity.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There is a Patreon button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution to Science Fiction University, P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. We're going to take a one-time only left turn away from the uh, genre of science fiction to talk about film noir. Because, frankly, during our off time, which we don't have a lot of, but we enjoy it, we've been watching a lot of detective-slash-noir fiction, which we both really, really love. Um, mm-hmm. My wife is a huge fan of uh, the Thin Man series, which yes. is terrific. We've watched Tokyo Vice, which we love, True Detective Night Country, which is problematic, but we like that, and Monsieur Spade. And so down the film noir rabbit hole, we tumbled. I tell you right out, I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. Swell. Now, if this doesn't interest you, we fully understand. You know, it's not for everybody, although most science fiction fans are film noir fans, we've noticed there's a lot of overlap. We'll be back next month with an episode that we're tentatively titling uh, either the post-apocalypse apocalypse or the post-post-apocalypse, or... And then the cops showed up. (laughs) But today, fair warning. We are going to have lots of spoilers in this episode, and we are going to be spoiling Monsieur Spade, which is currently available, all episodes, on AMC. Mm -hmm. We're also going to be spoiling the 1931 Warner Brothers version of the Maltese Falcon, which is available on VOH.com. The 1936 version of the Maltese Falcon, which is also from Warner Brothers, and is called Satan Met a Lady, for some reason. It is available for rent or purchase on YouTube. The classic 1941 version of the Maltese Falcon, starring an absolutely stacked cast, including Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, and Elisha Cook Jr., and is available just about everywhere. And which actually shares an art director, Robert M. Haas, with the 1931 version. And, of course, the original 1930 Maltese Falcon novel or novella, depending on how you rate them, by Dashiell Hammett. That got this all started. Yeah. We had so much fun doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, Finally, in order to rebut the lads over at the Watch podcast, you know, a little podcast on the edge of town called The Watch. um, (laughs) They they love Monsieur Spade. This was right in their wheelhouse, but they were troubled by the ending. So we'll be doing a quick lateral move over to another bogey classic of film noir, The Big Sleep, to explain the importance of the historical context in which movies and TVs, uh, TV shows are made. Really important stuff. Now, Monsieur Spade is a sequel to all the previous Falcon adaptations. In it, The now 60-year-old and retired detective Sam Spade is enjoying his retirement in the south of France. Looks like a lovely place. Mm -hmm. His life in 1963, Bozul, 
is peaceful and quiet, but then come the murders, the return of an old enemy, dark secrets, and another MacGuffin that everyone is after. And I'm sure we don't have to explain what a MacGuffin is to all you smart people out there. It's not a falcon this time, but a mysterious child who is believed to possess great powers. Uh, this time, the, the part of Sam Spade is being played by Clive Owen, who has just the right body type, habits, and attitude of cynical misanthropy that make him an excellent old man Sam, now 30 years removed from his life of danger and womanizing in San Francisco. Now comes for the real, for real, spoiler stuff. So if you don't want to hear it, move on. Through flashbacks, we learn that Sam came to Bozul's in 1955 on a mission to make good on a promise to deliver an eight-year-old girl named Teresa to her family. The girl's father is an infamous criminal. Or is and he? Her, or is, or he? is he? Uh-huh. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> da, da, da. And her mother is Bridget O'Shaughnessy, who Sam sent to prison at the end of the Maltese Falcon 1941. Mm-hmm. O'Shaughnessy may or may not have died in a train crash in Istanbul. You know, I mean, is she in prison for life for murder or not? We Is she dead? Is she alive? Is she, is she alive? Is she, where is she? We don't but know. This is her kid. This Teresa is her child, is her daughter. And Bridget definitely paid Sam a large amount of money to take her daughter and deliver her to Bozul, where ostensibly her father's family is. Mm hmm. Sam and Teresa meet a young French woman in Bozul who speaks English and picks them up from where they were stranded by the side of the road. Then we flash forward eight years later and find Sam is visiting the gravestone of this same woman. And this is a woman that he has fallen in love with and married. So he is now her widower and has been so for two years. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're at. Now, when Sam arrived in France, he spoke no French, and he alienated pretty much everyone he met. He was just there to drop the kid off, pay off the convent, and move on with his life. And he pissed off everybody there, including the chief of police. And But all these years later, he has learned to speak French rather badly. Everyone jokes about, you know, if you spoke French correctly, maybe this wouldn't happen to you. Uh, and he's slowly <laughs> become a respected member of the community and very good friends with the same chief of police. Roger Ebert called the original Maltese Falcon, quote, essentially a series of conversations punctuated by brief, violent interludes, unquote, which is 100% correct. After more than 80 years, it is still a timeless and incredibly quotable movie. Well, if you lose a son, it's possible to get another. There's only one Maltese Falcon. You always have a very smooth explanation ready, huh? What do you want me to do, learn to study? I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could. The cheaper the crook, the gaudier the fatter, huh? You won't get into any trouble, will you? I don't mind a reasonable amount of trouble. People lose teeth talking like that. If you want to hang around, you'll be polite. Don't be too sure I'm as crooked as I'm supposed to be. Uh, you will take, say, $100? No, I will take, say, $200. One of the reasons why it has so many great lines is because all the characters in it love to talk. Even the gunsel, even the gunman played by Elisha Cook Jr. just can't keep their mouths shut. The entire last act of the film takes place in Sam's small apartment. There's no gunplay. There's one fist fight where Elisha Cook gets punched out. But the rest of it is nothing but the five main characters all talking. And except for Sam's bit about the Falcon being, these are the stuff that dreams are made of. 
all the best lines in the film, every last one of them, as well as the pacing and the story beats are all taken directly from Dashiell Hammett's novel. Now, a few lines are tweaked here and there. For example, Hammett's Sam Spade says, Christ or Jesus Christ or God, several times. And then it never shows up in the film because you can't do that. But other than those minor modifications, the director of the film, John Huston, was wise enough to let Hammett's words work their magic. As we mentioned in preparation for this podcast, we watched all three versions of the Maltese Falcon and read the novella. And if you compare the texts like theologians compare the Gospels, Mm -hmm. you can't help but notice that in each movie, the best bits are the lines taken straight from the book. And the closer the film sticks to the original text of the book, the better it is. But there are all substantial differences, which made all three films fascinating to watch. Even though I have to say, Satan Met a Lady (laughs) was almost unwatchable. It is a Betty Davis vehicle. Yeah. It is played for laughs. And uh, it looks like a parody of an actual movie. It's, It's just not that great. Yeah, which Betty Davis, I believe, later called Garbage. Um, <laughs> and clearly it was shot, you know, in, in a record time. Yeah, um, to be done but, by Tuesday, you know. But we'll, right. get to, we'll get to all that in a little bit. Um, first of all, let's talk about uh, the 1931 version. And I love this part of history, film history, because mm-hmm. this is a pre-code movie. Yep. And pre-code Hollywood was the period between 1927 and 1934 that roughly coincided with the coming of sound pictures in 27 and the strict enforcement of the motion picture production code, all those censorship guidelines, which began in 1934. The Hayes code was adopted in 1930, but film studios initially blew it off and it didn't become rigorously enforced until July 1st, 1934 with the establishment of the production code administration. Mm Mm-hmm. As a result, some films in the late 20s and 30s were pretty adult. Yeah. There was a lot wow. of sexual innuendo, romance and sex between unmarried people, between black and white people. There was swearing, drugs, adultery, abortion, violence, and homosexuality. And th- probably the worst of all for the moral standards of the Hayes Code, the villains were often depicted as enjoying themselves and getting away with crimes. Yeah. With no moral or physical uh consequences to yeah. shooting somebody or raping someone or no. beating a woman i mean it was just it was just okay because this was their lifestyle one thing you you notice about a lot of uh, uh code movies is how the bad guy always has to lose yeah always has to uh, always has to get his come and the up gay and character just... has to die so yeah some which way yeah even if it's just lightly implied the gay character has to die now, the Hayes Code put a stop to all that fun stuff. And around our house, when we watch old black and white movies, you will often hear Blue Gal shouting pre-code out loud and correctly. <laughs> yes, yeah, like you can tell the difference. <laughs> we watch a lot of old movies. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, pre-code, oh, yeah, oh, my God, yes. And there was a moment in the 31 version where, boom, you could really tell. Now, there are a lot of ways you can tell the 31 version of the Maltese Falcon is pre-code. Sam Spade is portrayed as a man who will hit on anything in a skirt. And by hit and on- And sleep I, with them. Not I, just hit on them, but get lucky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he visits Ruth Wonderly in her apartment. That's Bridget O'Shaughnessy's alternate name in her apartment. And we see him waking up next to her uh, in bed the next morning, which is a big code no-no. We also see 
uh, Wonderly in her bath, very obviously naked. There's also a scene in the final act of the movie where Casper Gutman is trying to sow suspicion between Spade and Wonderly by palming some money he was using to pay Spade off and then blaming it on her. That shows up in, in all the movies in one form or another and in the novel. Now, in the 1941 version, Sam Spade confronts her in the kitchen and she denies it and he believes her and he goes back to Gutman and demands that he either admit it and, and produce the money or stand for a search. And then he has his little laugh. Is oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but in the 1931 version and in the novella, instead of just looking into her eyes and believing her when she tells him, Spade humiliates her by strip searching her in the kitchen. In the book, this definitely damages their burgeoning relationship. But in the movie, it's really just played for laughs. But there she is, very clearly naked, holding up clothes, but she has nothing on under it. And the, sh- the, the part with her in the bath the same way. It's all very clearly pre-code. Yeah. And Sam has seen her naked more yes, than once. And they are not married. Mm-hmm. And that just for laugh sensibility is where the novella and the 1941 version most radically diverge from both the pre-code 1931 version and the post-code 1936 comedy. The trailers for the 1936 film hypes the fact that this is a new mystery sensation by the author of The Thin Man, which is what most people would have known Dashiell Hammett for, a breezy comedy of manners featuring a boozy amateur detective and his wealthy wife, socialite yeah. wife, and right? their little dog, and their cute little dog. Yes, and their little dog, exactly. Mm-hmm. Asta. Asta. Um, Hammett's original Thin Man draft was reportedly much darker and hard-boiled, set in San Francisco and featuring a private detective named John Guild. But the Nick and Nora final version was very different. True, there was a crime to be solved and a rogues gallery of suspects, but it was fun with with a much lighter comedic touch. Yeah, and we love those movies. I mean, we said we that. We love those movies. Love those well, movies. and let's fi- face it, both of these, uh, Satan, Metal Lady, and the Thin Man movies, in the middle of the Depression, people want to escape and have fun and make fun of rich people and enjoy people exactly. who are not worried about money. Yeah, exactly. You know, enjoy the banter between people who are not worried about money and are drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and who have a very good relationship with their um, staff, their household yes. staff. Yes, absolutely. The kitchen staff loves Nick and Nora. Yeah. Oh, the, um, the, the, and the lowlifes. I mean, the, he's yeah. friends with, <laughs> the, the commonality among all these detectives um, is that yeah. they, they all have friends among the housekeepers and the the, the hotel detectives right, and the cops right. on the beat and the, and the newsstands and the cabbies. They all know these people because this is the world they live in. Yep, yep. Um, clearly what the 1931 and 1936 versions were trying to be, especially the 36, where the star is not the male lead, it's Betty Davis. This is her vehicle. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is basically a supporting cast member and everyone else now has a different name than in the novella. Yeah. Bridget O'Shaughnessy is now Valerie Purvis. Sam Spade is now Ted Shane. Casper Gutman is Madame Barabbas, yeah, the Empress of a Thousand Crimes. They mm-hmm. changed the gender of Casper Gutman. Um, the very real Sam- city of San Francisco is now the imaginary city of San Marengo. The hotel is the General Fremont, not the Belvedere. I don't. I guess this is what the screenwriters made that helped them earn payment for writing the screenplay because they oh, no, changed I, I, all the names. Well, 
Well, let's let's let, let's but we'll go on. We'll go on. There's some other differences too. No, not Space. the differences, but the reason this happened, the the reason yeah. why it's this way, uh, is is to be is to be revealed in just a moment. All right, Spade's partner Miles Archer is now Milton Ames. The Joel Cairo character goes through the most drastic changes between version. Cairo was actually based on an actual criminal that Dashiell Hammett had arrested for forgery in Pasco, Washington in 1920. Mm-hmm. Now, in the novella, uh, this is interesting. Dr. Cairo is bluntly described as queer and, quote, a fairy, unquote. Yeah. And in the postcode Bogart version, Peter Lorre finds a way around the code and yeah, plays but... this gay character to the hilt. He sure does. Uh, you know, he his business cards and handkerchiefs smell like gardenias. Yes. And he fondles his umbrella and puts the the handle in his mouth along his lips, like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, oh, mm-hmm. we know exactly who this guy is. Mm-hmm. And and as I remember there was one commenter who said the Hayes Code guys were not very smart. I think it was John Houston. Yeah. They're not they're not the brightest people in the world. You know, <laughs> you can you can work it out. Um, and so in the 1936 movie, his character's name is Anthony Travers and he's definitely not gay and he's played by Arthur Treacher. Yep. You love Arthur Treacher. Arthur Treacher of Arthur Treacher's fish and chips. Yes. Always Mm -hmm. playing the butler, but he plays, he plays Cairo in this one. Mm -hmm. Um, he's not gay in the 1931 version. He is Dr. Joel Cairo and he is noted by M. Effie as being gorgeous. Yes. But there's no, there doesn't seem to be a lot of homosexuality overtone there. No. Warner Brothers applied to reissue. Warner Brothers applied to reissue the 1931 Maltese Falcon in 1936. But by that time, the Hayes office was up and running at full strength. And they looked at that movie and said, "Uh, no, you can't re-release that one. Hell no. Uh, And so after... That it was basically stuck in the vault for 30 years until the code collapsed and it could be shown again, at which time it was retitled Dangerous Female to avoid confusing audiences with that other little movie named The Maltese Falcon. Named the Maltese Falcon, which had been made in the interval. The the whole renaming the cast, changing the names, throwing it together in a hurry was both to squeeze a little more juice out of the same plot and characters uh, so Warner Brothers quickly remade the same movie with the same basic plot and the same basic characters they'd already made in 1931. They just changed a bunch of names and made it a comedy. And it's the same movie they would make again in 1941. But for the sake of clarity, from now on, we're going to try real hard to refer to all the characters in all the versions by their original novella and their original 1941 film version names. Now, across all the versions... Certain basic ingredients remain the same, which would be a really fun thing to study at great length in a writing class or a film class, because it's fascinating what survives and what doesn't. I know I've spoken on this podcast before and on our other podcast about a class I took at Columbia College um, called Parody, and it wasn't making fun of something. It was deconstructing the story, uh, one of five you could choose from, and then reconstructing it in a way that's, that changes some of the elements of the story. And the whole point of it was getting young writers to understand how carefully the plots of the great works of fiction are developed by the authors, how every piece is important. And when you change one element, the effect of that change can ripple through the entire story. And that's what's so interesting about these three films together and all three of them 
with the novella. What survived and what didn't and what changed and what didn't and what changes to the original plot and the original characters had uh, what effect that had on the plot. Now, there is a MacGuffin, which a small group of criminals and con artists are after. But in the 36th version, it's the Horn of Roland, which was <laughs> stuffed with jewels and lost for centuries, not a jeweled falcon. In every version, someone is tasked with telling the story of the MacGuffin and how valuable it is. The female lead is looking for an imaginary mis- missing person, a fiancé who deserted her in one version, a sister who has fallen in with bad company in another, but in every version she overpays the detectives, and that overpayment leads the detectives to suspect that she's lying. There are several murders, starting with Sam Spade's partner. There's a young, not very competent gunman, who in one version is described like a son, and in another version is the son of one of the villains. In each version, Spade is contacted in the middle of the night about his partner's murder, visits the crime scene, but declines to look at the body. In the 1931 version, and only in that 1931 version, an extremely important thing happens during that scene that changes the outcome of the movie. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But remember that at the end of the 1931 version, it's different because of something that happens at uh, the murder of Sam Spade's partner and where the body is. And almost immediately after Spade's partner is murdered, he has his partner's name taken off the door. Just shows that you what happens a, in the novella. It happens yeah. in all the movies. And it just shows you what a cold bastard he is. Yeah. The body's well, not even... He, did, he didn't give a shit about his partner. And his partner didn't care about him. Yeah. You know, and it's time to... Okay, moving on. We're moving on. Yep. Yep. So... There is also a ship that will arrive with the MacGuffin on board in a few days, maybe a week. And there's a fire on the ship and the captain dies and the MacGuffin falls into Spade's hands. Now, there are many precautions that Spade goes through to first hide and then retrieve the bundle that take up most of the final act of two of the movies. But in the 1936 version, all action takes place in a big hurry on a rainy dock where all the bad guys converge. Spade bargains with them, and then the cops show up almost immediately and rounds them all up, except for Shane and Valerie. Oh, I'm sorry. Spade and O'Shaughnessy. Yeah. Spade and O'Shaughnessy make their escape by train, where he tricks her into confessing to Ames' murder and tries to take her in to claim a $10,000 reward. But it's Valerie. Uh, She messes up his plan by going to the bathroom and allowing the washroom attendant, an African-American female, to uh, turn her into the police instead and get the money. Yeah. Ha! Screw That's you, Spade. That's the end of the 1936 version. Yep. Now, uh, the, ni- the 1931 version ends in a way that fans of the 1941 version would recognize. The villains all gather in Spade's apartment. Spade makes a deal. Money plus the gunman, the gunsel, as a fall guy in exchange for the Falcon and letting the bad guys get away, or at least letting them have a head start. The Falcon is delivered. It turns out to be, oh no, it turns out to be a fake. Oh my God, the twist of the movie. Oh no. Now in every version, Spade has held a gunpoint and frisked, but in the 36th version, it's by Betty Davis, and it's done for laughs. In the other versions, it's Joel Cairo, and it's also funny, but in a completely different way. In every version, Spade tells O'Shaughnessy that, quote, he won't play the sap for her, unquote, which is straight out of the novella. In two versions, Spade takes away the gunman's guns 
and jokes to the Gunzel's boss that, quote, a crippled newsboy, unquote, took them away from him. In the 31 and the 41 versions, Casper Gutman's dialogue is nearly identical, all straight out of Hammett, almost word for word. Dashiell Hammett was a good dialogue writer. That's really good dialogue writer. Fact, all, yes. All, almost all your favorite quotes are straight from the novel. Yep. But the differences among the versions, both in tone and substance, are also stark. In the 1931 version, Sam Spade is having sex with everybody. Yeah. It's the movie oof. opens with him saying goodbye to some woman he has clearly just had sex with in his office. He then immediately has his hands and lips all over his secretary. Yeah. He's very broad-minded. Uh, then in comes Miss O'Shaughnessy, with whom he will very shortly be spending the night. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's also having sex with his partner's wife, which Archer finds out about by listening in on their phone call, which changes the whole complexion of their partnership. Mm-hmm. He he knows flat out that his partner's having an affair with his wife. Yeah. Now, in the 1936 version, we open with Sam Spade being run out of some town somewhere, some unnamed town by the city fathers that he's offended somehow. He's wearing a cowboy hat for some reason and hopping a train. And during the trip, he cons a rich woman into hiring his former and future partner as her bodyguard, which is, you know, out of nowhere. And then he, as he's working this woman over and conning her into hiring his future partner, Ms. O'Shaughnessy is sitting right next to him, taking note of the private detective agency he's recommending. In this version, Spade is openly hitting on his partner's wife in front of his partner. And the whole thing is played for cuckolding laughs. Oh, what a laugh a minute. When his partner dies, well, that's just too bad. Let's all move on. And if I could just interrupt for a moment, that scene on the train where he's trying to convince the rich lady uh-huh. to hire his partner without saying, I, I'm in on it. I'm part of the partnership. I'm a, I'm a detective, too. Just uh-huh. saying, I'm just some random person on a train, but I know a great detective agency you can hire to protect your diamonds. Right. That she's wearing on the train. And uh-huh. she's wearing her big fur coat on the train. And she's over the top, glittered, you know, just just covered head to toe in wealth. Yeah. And is a comic figure, making fun of rich people. This is a 1936 movie. Flat oh, yeah. out comedy, make fun of the rich people, con the rich people, and uh, they are to be ridiculed. Yeah, she might as well be Margaret Dumont, really. Yeah, absolutely. She's kind of rich, really rich, clueless, and, and just stupid. right. Yes. And, and it's like taking advantage of her is okay because she's dumb and rich and I'm smart, but I'm poor. And that's really only fair to be yep. uh, to be taking the rich people for every cent they have. Now, in the 1941 version, we open with panning shots of San Francisco. A big title card, in case you don't recognize the city, reads San Francisco. And then we <laughs> sweep up to the offices of Spade and Archer where Sam Spade is rolling a cigarette. His secretary, Effie, enters and tells him that a potential client is waiting and that she's, quote, a real knockout. It's Bridget O'Shaughnessy, who initially offers the fake name of Ruth Wonderly, and then the lies begin. Again, the real knockout part, we checked on all these things. They're all straight from the novel. This is exactly how the novella begins, in this scene, in exactly this way. Once again, kids, when adapting a story for film, play very, pay very close attention to all the hard work that the author has already done to make the plot run smoothly and the characters feel real. It'll pay off big time when you make your big movie. The ending of all three movies is also very different from one another and different from the book. 
The ending of the 1941 movie, which you all know, it's one of the most quoted lines in movie history, is one of the few quotable lines that is not from Dashiell Hammett. It's this one. Harry, what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Huh? That's all John Huston. The Maltese Falcon was his directorial debut, and in it he showed a real genius for understanding what to cut, what to keep, what to add, and how to use visual storytelling to enhance Dashiell Hammett's original work. For example, did you know that in the novella there's a whole subplot involving Casper Gutman's daughter, the Sidney Greenstreet character, his daughter, who mm-hmm. is either a drug addict or was drugged by Gutman. Did you not know that? Because neither do we. <laughs> we were like, what? What? That never yeah. made it into any of the film adaptations because it's interesting and it might add some depth to Sidney Greenstreet's character, but it slows things down and it has no effect on the outcome of the story. Yep. So out it goes. Yep. It, knowing what to cut, knowing what to This is why I'm looking forward to the Dune part two and we thoroughly enjoy Dune part one. That, that, Denny Villeneuve really understood what parts of the novel to keep, what to get rid of, and what to Mm -hmm. consolidate in a way that moved the story along and made me enjoy it, made me love it as a fan of the original fiction. You don't want to speak too soon on that. Well, we don't know whether Dune 2 drags or not yet. So it's going to be awesome. I'm putting putting down a marker right now. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Okay. The spice must flow, honey. Now, (laughs) getting back to the 1931 version, uh, that one ends with O'Shaughnessy going to prison. And that's, you know, that's what you expect. Except in this version, Sam Spade actually goes there and visits her behind bars. He's the one who turned her in, but he still cares for her. And he tells the warden to make sure that she's well treated and has good food and cigarettes and candy. They have a very touching moment, uh, her behind bars and him on the outside. And when asked who will pay for her special treatment, he tells the warden to build the DA's office because he, Sam Spade, now works as a special investigator for the district attorney which is crazy. Hammett's Sam Spade would never, ever take a job like that. Mm-hmm. And the but, end of the- But the Sam end, Spade in 1931's depression would take that job. He absolutely would, because it's the That's job. That's the problem, yeah. It would pay the yeah. bills, absolutely it yeah. would. And the ending of the novella is different from all three movies. Most of it plays out exactly as the 1941 movie plays out, which I hope you're all familiar with, except we learn that Casper Gutman is now dead. He was shot to death by the gunman, that he was going to sell out. And Bridget has been sent to jail. Then we cut to the next morning, with Sam showing up to work as usual. A little after nine, his secretary Effie has read the paper, knows how all this stuff turned out, and is shocked that Spade turned Bridget in, along with the rest of the gang. Her voice was queer as the expression on her face. You did that, Sam? To her? He nodded. Your Sam's a detective. She did kill Miles, Angel, offhand, like that, he snapped his fingers. She escaped from his arm as if he had hurt her. Don't, please, don't touch me, she said brokenly. I know, I know you're right, you're right, but don't touch me now, not now. Her rejection of him bothers him, but only for a moment, a paling of the face. But it's over quickly. Effie goes back to her desk and ushers in the next client with a small, flat voice. Iva's here. Spade, looking down at his desk, nodded almost imperceptibly. Yes, he said, and shivered. 
Well, send her in. Unquote. That's the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And Ziva? Sam having to confront once again his partner's widow. Uh-huh. Who he's been trying to avoid the entire book. Keep her away from me. Now, and here's the thing. This is this is some of the magic of Bogart's acting. Mm-hmm. If you read the novella, Sam Spade is a bastard. Mm-hmm. An absolute mm-hmm. cynical, womanizing bastard. And you shouldn't like him. But Bogart makes us like him because his acting is so strong and because the things he does believe, he believes so strongly that you kind of have to have to say, this guy really does have a set of principles he follows and so forth. So before we move on to the subject of the tone of the thing, for you writing and film students out there, let's go back to the subject of plot structure. Now, changing one little detail can have a profound downstream effect on the outcome of the story. In the 1931 version of The Maltese Falcon, after Sam Spade declines to look at his partner's dead body, he steps down an alley in what is very clearly Chinatown to speak with a man standing in the shadows. Spade addresses him in what sounds like Cantonese, and the man answers him in the same language. And I thought, holy hell, Sam Spade speaks Cantonese. When the hell did this happen? The man steps back into the shadows. Spade walks away. And nothing more is made of this, no mention of it at all, until the very end of the movie when we find out via a newspaper headline, and newspaper headlines are so very helpful, (laughs) that Bridget O'Shaughnessy was convicted thanks to a Chinatown eyewitness who saw the whole thing. What? 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 So, Sam Spade knew all along, right from the start, that his soon-to-be girlfriend murdered his partner. Yeah. Which, yeah. like, you know, hand solo shooting first, one little detail completely changed the context of everything we thought we knew. Why was this detail added? I'm, I'm sitting around going, what the hell? Why, who put well, this in? Well, I think, I think the, the filmmakers wanted to make absolutely sure the audience knew, yes, 100%, Bridget O'Shaughnessy did murder the partner. There's yes. no question. Yes. But the fact that Sam Spade knew from the beginning of the movie... From the moment he was witness to his partner's body, he had spoken to a witness who saw the woman kill him. Mm-hmm. And then all of the scenes that go on with the playfulness and him sleeping with her uh-huh. and in the bathtub and stripping off all her clothes in the. Now that explains that explains stripping off the clothes in the kitchen mm-hmm. and leaving in there, her there naked. He treats her like garbage because she is a murderer. Mm-hmm. And he knows it. But the audience isn't in on that at all. No. It's a very bad plot hole mm-hmm. that the audience just doesn't know that he what he knows and, and is therefore, I wouldn't call him an unreliable narrator. It's just a, it's just a plot hole that the director decided to leave there to mess with the with the audience. And uh, yeah. And- well, and even knowing I don't know what that. purpose it was supposed to serve other than we absolutely know that she belongs in prison for murder Yeah, because there well, was an eyewitness. Yeah. We, we never doubted it because she confesses to it. Right. And then but, she confesses. So we really didn't yeah. need this. And, but, and however, yeah. and, and, and whatever purpose it was supposed to serve, he still loves her. Yeah. He still visits yeah. her in prison. He says, take, yeah. he'll take care of her. He just won't, he won't play the sap for her. He won't, right. you know, they're both waiting under the gallows and so forth. So right. anyway. Now, as to the matter of the tone of each of these movies, we've already talked about what Warner Brothers was clearly shooting for in 31 and 36, something that would be much closer to the tone of The Thin Man 
than the original Maltese Falcon novella. That's what was going to sell movie tickets in 31 and 36. Uh, And this initial decision is why both films are interesting in their own ways, but neither of them really work. Because there is no good way to make an ice-cold cynic like Sam Spade into a breezy, quippy, drunk, happy, cocktail-mixing Nick Charles. No. Happily married Nick Charles. Happily married. Yeah. Knows how to make a perfect martini. And Mm -hmm. yeah, no. Now, in, in both the 31 and 36 pictures, Sam Spade is smiling constantly. No kidding. He, there's barely a scene where he isn't grinning and laughing and making a joke. Everything is funny. Everything is to be laughed at. Mm-hmm. In the 31 version, Ricardo Cortez's performance as Spade is noteworthy because he is given the impossible job of trying to be both hard-boiled and cheerful, upbeat and menacing. Director Roy Del Ruth tries to create a visual atmosphere that is striking and suspenseful. And there are scenes where this works, but in the end, it couldn't stand up to the relentless barrage of lightheartedness from the cast of characters. And both the 31 and 36 retain much of the stiltedness of silent movies. Yeah. Cameras that are locked down, single fixed headshots of actors talking, echoey sound stages and sets without ceilings. Um, that's very definitely something in the 41 version that you notice that, you know, Sam's office has a, has a ceiling in it. Uh, yeah, it's an office. It's an office. Um, and the actors in the earlier versions are routinely overdoing it. They're still playing everything big and loud so they can be heard in the cheap seats. Yeah. And they just haven't learned yet the technology, the sound tech, sound technology no. and, and the way of making movies and having that, those skills just hasn't been built into movies yet. No, it was, it was very much, I mean, there was a lot of pancake makeup, Mm -hmm. a a lot of, you know, two actors cramming their faces into the same, the same shot so they could both be seen together, look completely unnatural, which is understandable. (laughs) That's the state of the technology. So for 1931 audiences trying to put ourselves in their headspace, this adaptation of the Maltese Falcon was probably considered a well-made and entertaining film. And it still remains a must see for fans like us of classic Hollywood cinema and detective films. But I swear to God, the 1941 version, just 10 years later, feels like it's from a different era, a different planet. The camera work is fluid and naturalistic, and it's unobtrusive. It's not a lot of fancy stuff that calls attention to the fact that you're watching something through a camera lens. The characters' personalities don't all seem to be at war within themselves. There's no like, well, he has to be upbeat and cheerful and menacing and whatever. You know who these people are clearly and it also gets all the little details right all the little human stuff that makes for a great movie like the way just this little interchange between spade and archer who look at each other and their eyes get very big as they watch bridget o'shaughnessy rooting through her purse like oh oh and and i believe afterwards archer says and that those hundred dollar bills have brothers and sisters in that purse right right Um, right there's Wilmer the Gunsel who pulls his hat down so low that he keeps bumping into people on the street while trying to follow Sam Spade because he's bad at his job. There's Joel Cairo trying to talk his way out of Spade's apartment when the police show up. Just sounds like an idiot. And honestly, the just sheer incompetence of this little gang of bad guys who are who are silly and dumb and make mistakes, but they've already gotten three people killed. And who knows how many they've already gotten killed in other countries. And Spade kind of delights in mocking them as a swell lot of thieves. 
the movie is just full of these little terrific human moments that add depth and color to the characters. Now, yeah. Yeah. the 1936 version really does have the worst of both worlds. Do you want to you take this? Sure. It's got all the stage staginess and campiness of a bad silent movie. And to beat the code, they have to play it as slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. Almost entirely for laughs. Also, it's much less violent than the Maltese Falcon. The film's violence is mostly comedic, and there's no sense of real danger or suspense. The marketing tagline for the movie was, he made love to her to make her confess murder. Then she made a confession that made even the devil's ears burn. Satan met a lady. Yeah. (laughs) Which kind of makes you wonder whether anyone attached to this project had any idea what was going on, besides the fact that she's a murderer, but hell, she's also Betty Davis. That's right. We and this get, is a Betty Davis movie. It's a Betty, we got to get this one out the door. Got got to be done in, in six days. Let's go, 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 people. People want a Betty Davis movie in March, so let's go. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. The studio system churning out movie after movie after movie with the same actors because oh, yeah. they were marketable and bankable. And it was important to have these vehicles that uh-huh. just, uh, that that one actor had to carry them, right? Oh, yeah. It was a pop. I mean, it was like popcorn. They cranked popcorn. out movies. Yep. It was a machine, and you cranked yep. out so many movies per actor per year under contract. It's impossible and- to think of someone like I don't know George Clooney making four yeah. or five movies in a year. No, and just back to back you know, to back to back. And and they, people did. Yeah. Movie stars did make three or four movies a year. Yeah, well, and that's that's the thing. They gave John Huston a clearly a budget to work yeah. with. They gave him yeah. they gave him money, real money. They gave him a cast, uh, although I think George Raft was originally supposed to play Sam Spade. And that would yeah. have been weird. But um, And they also gave him um, uh, the ability to make a movie that he wanted to make. It was not, yep. crank this out, let's get it done, let's move on to the next thing. They really gave him some time and money and cast to make a really good movie. And the technology had caught up with what he wanted to do and say. So, yeah. Yeah. all right. So let's move on to contemporary times when budgets for the catering truck for Mr. Spade, <laughs> I'm sure would have paid for all three of these movies. Right. I said Dash will ham it up for life as a wealthy man. Um, now, Mr. Spade. we talk for a moment uh, with Mr. Uh, Spade? We just have to talk for a moment about the set yeah. and the cinematography oh. yeah. and how it is absolutely escapist wealth porn. You're, you're in a French vineyard uh-huh. estate. Yes. Gorgeous house gorgeous grounds you know individual he has his own individual lap pool Mm -hmm. i mean it's just it it is absolutely breathtaking yeah it also would never have survived the code because he likes to be naked a lot (laughs) (laughs) yeah he likes to take his clothes off when he swims which really is kind of off-putting for the people who visit him because he'll just drop his his robe and and talk because it's this is my house this is my pool this is my uh housekeeper and yeah. I don't have to, and it really is a guy who's who's just like, I don't have to do a goddamn thing for the rest of my life. Right. I am right. done with the world. The world can go fuck itself. Pardon my language. The world can go screw itself because I'm done. And I'm going to sit here in this little French town and drink wine and smoke cigarettes, even though the doctor says they're going to kill me and enjoy the rest of my life. And then, of course, the bad thing happens and the real world comes crashing in. And, and, Monsieur Spade is really very much a worthy sequel of the 1941 Maltese Falcon. But there is one thing about it that seems to have some people confused or feeling that it didn't end well. 
And that was the arrival of Alfre Woodard. And you have to talk about your sister texting you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My sister, <laughs> we, we, uh, we, I Zoom with my siblings once every two weeks or so. Love them dearly. They're great people. They're smart and wonderful. And we all have similar movie tastes and TV tastes, but they overlap a little bit. So we give each other recommendations. And she's just enjoying the hell out of Monsieur Spade. And then the, in the middle of the evening, suddenly there's a text with just Alfre Woodard, exclamation point, exclamation point. Exclamation point. point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, I just said, yeah, isn't that great? Something like that. I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was really cool. But, um, but it was arrival... Deus Ex Machina. It's like, where it, it the hell was. did she come from? Yeah. Yeah. What What's she doing here? Why is she here? And so forth. And that seems to have freaked out the lads over at the Watch uh, podcast, mm-hmm. which I listen to and enjoy very much and, and agree with 90% of the, their opinions. But in this case, I, I just think we should talk about context, the context of the movie. And to do that... I want to take a little bit of a short circuit over to a different movie called The Big Sleep, um, which is Humphrey Bogart's other classic film noir um, movie. Awesome movie. Different writer. This was Dashiell Hammett. That's Raymond Chandler. He plays a very different kind of detective. Philip Marlowe is poor. Philip Marlowe doesn't have a secretary. Philip Marlowe isn't corrupt. Philip Marlowe is a straight arrow, man who lives by principle, and, and is every bit uh, a worthy detective as Sam Spade. And the fact that Bogart got to play both of them is awesome. But Philip Marlowe, if you watch The Big Sleep, you'll start to notice some things happening there. And I urge you to watch both these movies because they're just awesome. Um, there's a mention of things called red points in the movie. There's a dead body. He calls his friend on the detective squad up and says, how are you fixed for red points? And he says, well, I've got a, I've got a body here. And then another body shows up later and he says, oh, uh, I got some more red points for you. I got some cold meat laid out, which is a fairly cynical, cold way of talking about a corpse you just stumbled across. Mm-hmm. Red points were ration book points for meat. Mm-hmm. They were. This was wartime rationing. the 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 movie takes place towards the end of World War II in Los Angeles. Another thing you notice when you watch it a second or third time is the man shortage. There are no good men around. All the good men are off fighting World War II. The, the men who are in this movie are either um, drug dealers or petty criminals or, or, or gangsters or uh, pornographers <laughs> or butlers or the old man whose daughters kick off the whole thing or Philip Marlowe, who's mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. good and decent man who's upright and principled and skilled and smart. So in this movie, Philip Marlowe is getting laid right and left because there's nobody out there to compete with and because the women of Los Angeles are horny and there's no good men around. So he goes to a bookstore and you notice that there's all these jobs that are usually done uh, by men that are now being done by women. So the, the, the person who owns the bookstore, the rare bookstore that he goes to, is a woman, lovely woman. The cab he gets into to follow another car is a woman. And in both cases... Uh, in one case, he very clearly has sex with the woman at the bookstore because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're having a chat and he starts chatting her up and she starts chatting him up and he's and it starts raining outside. And he said, well, you know, I'd much rather get wet in here than out there. I got a, po- uh, a pretty good bottle of rye in my pocket. And she closes the bookstore and pulls the shade down and takes her glasses off. And about an hour later, we rejoin them in their post-coital bliss and off he goes. Uh, mm-hmm. The cab driver, the cabbie, also a brunette, also attractive. Um, he thanks her very much, and she gives uh, him her card and says, call me if you ever want to use me again. 
And uh, he said, day or night? And she says, nights are better. I work during the day. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So there are no men around except, you know, very, very few decent good men. And Sam Spade is sleeping with a lot of women, which good for him. But that's also the man shortage. That's also a product of World War II. That's what's happening during the story. Therefore, that's what's happening in the story. So what's happening in Monsieur Spade, which takes place in 1963? Well, the Cold War is happening. The Cold War defines everything. And in this little town of Bozul, there are a bunch of petty criminals and a bunch of lovers and a bunch of jilted people and a bunch of dead nuns and a bunch of mystery. But at the heart of it all is this MacGuffin, who's this kid who's a genius code breaker, who breaks codes uh, like you and I can can read sheet music. He is a genius. He does it all the time. He can't stop it. And so everybody wants him. Everybody wants this kid because he's a code breaker. And who's the big dog on the block during the Cold War in France? It's not England. It's not Germany. It's the United States. The United right. States is the dominant superpower. The United States and the Soviet Union are the dominant superpowers in the world. So there's all these competing factions who are fighting over this kid. There are, there's his family. There's the British Secret Service. There's people in Algiers. There's all these smaller powers all fighting over this valuable piece of property, this, this child. And in the end, in comes the United States in the person of Alfred Woodard, black woman from quote unquote Canada, <laughs> Which she's very clearly not from Canada. And I think he says something like, what part of Canada? And she says, the southern part. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Which as, means the U.S. <laughs> then the U.S. And, and probably somewhere in Georgia right. or, or, or Alabama or, or Chicago. But she yes. clearly is spy. She's clearly yeah. the spy. Yeah. And she comes there as the United States. She comes there as the superpower coming in at the last minute and she has files on everybody. She knows mm-hmm. what everybody there does. She knows their background, their business. She goes through this room full of, of criminals and suspects and just people who are happen to be there, competitors. And she names them and shames them mm-hmm. and, you know, names the priest who's not a priest and tells him to get lost and has you arrest him, arrest him. You guys can go. You're a crook. And she goes through everybody's record yep. and, and knows who they are and what they're there for. And just takes over. And she takes and over she the way. she knows her limitations when it comes to butting up against the Catholic Church. And she doesn't care. Right, doesn't she, care. she lets the Catholic Church guy know, yeah, yeah. we've got your number two. We know all about your yeah. shit. Yeah. And yeah. She, she, uh, she's, she's deferential. She's polite but not deferential to local authorities. Yeah. She, she doesn't harass people who are just a small town cop trying to do a good job. And at the very last, they come to Monsieur Spade. She knows all about his business. She knows what what building he was in. Mm-hmm. She knows who took the building over. She knows everything about everyone. And then she makes a little whistling. She whistles uh, Colonel Bogey's March. And that's mm-hmm. the cue for the kid to follow her out the door. And that's the, yep. the cue from... And, um, kn- and the child recognizes that as his signal that mm-hmm. he's been taught uh-huh. to, to uh, go with her. Follow- Follow that person. That's that's from yep. the bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, but yep. th- I'm I'm firmly convinced. Now it might have not been set up as well as it could have been. Uh, it could have been a little a, could have been done a little bit better. But I'm firmly convinced that the context for Alfred Woodard showing up at the end was the United States has arrived. Everyone needs to sit down and shut up because I'm in charge now, 
and I'm going to jail you. I'm going to thank you. I'm going to ignore you. And I'm taking the kid who can break codes home with me. Bye-bye now. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and yeah. the other young person in this is Teresa, who is yeah, clearly- Yeah, and she, who is she? Yeah. Well, I think we know. I think we know. I think by the she's end of the movie, Sam Spade's kid. She's right, Sam, she right. really is Sam Spade's kid. And by the right. end, she has become a young Sam Spade. She is cynical. She is attractive. She is resourceful. She um, And they both wear the same shades and they both stand the same way. And clearly yeah. this is, I'm hoping, a setup for a father-daughter sequel. Because she's up to it. She figured out. She got herself out of a lot of bad situations by being smart and keeping her wits about her and and figuring out who was the bad guy. And she's head and shoulders smarter than everybody else. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of hoping hoping for that. But in the end, it's about a father and a daughter in a small town in France that's sitting on the edge of the abyss. And at the end, America has come to uh, claim its own and everyone else can get back to what they were doing. I hope we've spent some enough time talking about how important the time in which these films and TV things came out. Absolutely. To, to what those movies are Mm -hmm. because the 31 and 36 versions are in the depths of the depression. Mm -hmm. So lightheartedness and making fun of rich people and so forth is what movies were and what they were for. You get to the Maltese Falcon in 1941 Mm-hmm. And it's Hitler, and we're about to go to war. And uh, being an American hero is important. The the um, fluidity with which these con artists who are looking for the Falcon are traveling for to Istanbul, to the South China Sea, mm-hmm. to <laughs> there they, and and the, they have the money to hop on a boat and give something to a ship's captain to bring over later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they ha- they're they just pursuing, as you said, the stuff that dreams are made of. This well, I, oh, I, just, Go ahead. I was going to say that the other cynical Bogart movie from the period is Casablanca. Two years later, Casablanca. With, with, yeah. Also with Sidney Greenstreet, also with Peter Lorre. Right. And it's right. the cynical American, the cynical mm-hmm. American who doesn't want to get involved, who just gets looped into something bigger than himself, who has to figure this stuff out on his own, who eventually turns out to be the good guy. I mean. The entire movie of Casablanca, Rick Blaine is the most cynical man you've ever met in your life. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. give a shit about anything. He's a bar owner. He doesn't the world the, the problems of the world are not in his department. And right. he sticks his neck out for nobody. Mm-hmm. He might as mm-hmm. well be uh, 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 Sam Spade's cousin. Except he doesn't. And, <laughs> except except in the <laughs> when end. When it comes to playing La Marseille's Yes. And his the entire band looks at him. One nod gets them one to nod. do what he wants. And you can see yeah. that however cynical he is, and he's very cynical, and however bitter he is, and he's very bitter, in the end, he will do he's the right thing. He's from New York. He's from New York, <laughs> and he'll do the right thing. Right. And right. At, the end, right. at the end of uh, at the end of the Maltese Falcon, it, are you really going to turn in your girlfriend? Yeah. Are you really going to? Yep. 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 I'm going to do that. And we're going to give you the speech that he gives at the very end. When he's explaining to Bridget Shaughnessy, uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, why he's doing what he's doing. In fact, why yeah. don't we play that now? Here it is. Listen, this won't do any good. You'll never understand me, but I'll try once and then give it up. When a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of him. He was your partner, and you're supposed to do something about it. And it happens we're in the detective business. 
Well, when one of your organization gets killed, it's, it's bad business to let the killer get away with it. Bad all around, bad for every detective everywhere. You don't expect me to think that these things you're saying are sufficient reason for sending me to the... Wait till I'm through, then you can talk. I've no earthly reason to think I can trust you, and if I do this and get away with it, you'll have something on me that you can use whenever you want to. Since I've got something on you, I couldn't be sure that you wouldn't put a hole in me someday. All those are on one side. Maybe some of them are unimportant. I won't argue about that. But look at the number of them. What have we got on the other side? All we've got is that maybe you love me and maybe I love you. You know whether you love me or not. Maybe I do. I'll have some rotten nights after I've sent you over, but that'll pass. If all I've said doesn't mean anything to you, then forget it and we'll make it just this. I won't because all of me wants to, regardless of consequences. And because you counted on that with me, the same as you counted on that with all the others. Would you have done this to me if the Falcon had been real? You've got your money? Don't be too sure I'm as crooked as I'm supposed to be. That sort of reputation might be good business, bringing high-priced jobs and making it easier to deal with the enemy. But a lot more money would have been one more item on your side of the scale. If you'd loved me, you wouldn't have needed any more on that side. He has a code. He has a code. The only thing I was going to add to that was what um monsieur spade means in 2024 during the height of the streaming renaissance where you know we have great great films coming into our living room on demand and what what is the pressure on studios and what is the lack of pressure on studios because it will get an audience regardless of airtime or there, there there are no constraints in terms of when you get to watch this um True. so it can build an audience over i i think the difference is and and you know we we can talk about this in many other forms mm-hmm. but the fact that they have over the course of six to eight episodes and one of the episodes is an hour and 45 minutes long and another episode is 55 minutes long mm-hmm. and another episode is an hour long yeah. <laughs> and it just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, I also find it interesting that Monsieur Spade, because it's on AMC, has commercial breaks. Yes, it does. Yep. So you have to factor that in in terms of experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be a little more episodic and uh, told in ch- it's told in chunks and so forth, which, you know, to, for my money diminishes the experience. But uh, it is still it is a product of its time in terms of the amount they can spend and the amount that they can time they can take to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And I got lost several times during these episodes. I, oh, of, I did, too. Where the hell are we? <laughs> yeah. But but you know what? I had confidence in the person who was telling the story. Yes, I did. That they did would too. lead me along. That they would But John Houston didn't have that luxury. No, he did not. He did not. Not for one minute did he have the luxury of allowing the audience to have to go back and watch it again or trust me, this is yeah. all gonna come together with Alfred Woodard explains it all for you. <laughs> or, or, or lingering, <laughs> lingering over something yeah. for a full hour that yeah, is the bar of, yeah you know just exactly. the bar <clears throat> no you have an hour and 20 minutes go this mm-hmm. is the, and, and you're not we're not telling he's not shooting a film that's going to have like a television show 
another episode and another episode and right. another episode. Well, I mean, you and I went through the trauma of losing um, Perry Mason. Yes. Which was, <laughs> we thought there'd be more of them. And yes. the, the, the two, two seasons, seasons we got were great. Not enough. Right. <clears throat> but it was too much. It cost too much. And there was not enough interest. Well, and in that's it, why the writer strike happened. That's why the, that's why the, the strikes happened was because these st- streaming studios were saying, we'll pay you for the third season. Yeah. And then canceling after two seasons because then we got to pay you more. So oh, we're no. not going to make your great art that's critically acclaimed anymore because it's going to cost us too much. You're telling me it comes down to money. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the other thing is, I think I told you, we were sitting here this weekend watching all three of these. And uh, I said, yeah, but Satan Metal Lady is an hour and nine minutes. Right. <laughs> you know, it's-, it's like... In and out. In and out. It's designed to be forgettable. It's designed to be Betty yeah. Davis. And you know what? It, it at the time I kind of I gotta believe that it was not very well regarded. There was no there yeah. was no there was no school of film criticism. There was no film school, period. Yeah. It was just, right. you know, you crank these things out, you move on to the next one. And if you know 90 And it's so that people can escape for an hour. Yeah. The depression escape the depression and go to Betty Davis's art deco apartment for an right. hour. For an right. hour. And one thing we have noticed in in as we tour the country listening to old-timey radio, especially the commercials, especially <laughs> the the uh, inter-show announcements. It's, you know, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, so-and-so. Al Ladd will be appearing in his next film, The Something from the Beyond the Place. Yeah. And, and it's a movie that all of these kind of, and and these this big star will now be appearing next week in a Warner Brothers production of Thus and So. I've heard of none of these movies. Yeah. It's yeah. not from here to eternity. It's not like... And then you remember, oh, about 90% of everything is just gone. Yeah. The, the yeah. films that we know and we love and we, we look at as the classics of the genre are the 5% that survived the you know cruelty of history mm-hmm. and the degradation of celluloid yeah. into, into nothing. And, and, and if, they, if they haven't found their way to Steven Spielberg's wallet to get right. restored and recovered and gone. put back together, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they're gone. Yeah. And so I'm guessing in 20 years, people will be watching Monsieur Spade, coming back to it, et cetera. But they probably won't be coming back to, you know, Family Feud. Yeah. They won't right. be going, you know, I wonder what the game shows were like back then. I wonder <laughs> what, <clears throat> I wonder what the, you know, I wonder what those, those. Love those, at first sight. What was that about? <laughs> those Jersey, sociologists might visit Jersey oh, Shore. Oh, yeah. The Jersey Shore people are but, definitely a sociology trip. Yes. It's not that people are going to come flashing back. And I really do think that when you're shooting to make something that will last, mm-hmm. you've got to give yourself enough time and money and talent to do it. And you have to expect that you're making it inside of a larger machine. And that larger machine doesn't really care about your sensibilities. It cares about cranking out nine of these things a year. And if you get right. one or two that last, that's great. And we're lucky. We're the beneficiaries of that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you. You all should know that Science Fiction University even one time when it's not really about science fiction, is still a production of DGBG Productions. You can support this show by donating via Patreon or PayPal. Details at our website, sciencefictionuniversity.com. And thank you so much for staying with us for this journey through a fine film noir experience that we, you and I the both enjoyed. first film noir, by many, by many accounts. The Maltese yeah. Falcon is considered the first film noir, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks for coming along with us on this little journey.